Nice work. Hey, so uh, Megan just mentioned the Overtime podcast. So uh, we do that live about 12-ish on, on Tuesdays. Depends on, we have staff meetings and all sorts of meetings going on in the morning. So about 12-ish, 12-15. Um, but if you don't can't catch that live, that's okay. You can always go back to our media page online and watch that later. But if you decide that you want to catch it online, you can, especially for those of you who are watching this online, right now if you join us online you can just chime in with questions right there on the platform so we'd love to be able to answer some of your questions in real time so if you have them ahead of time go and write them down you can drop them in the bulletin you can text them you can email them to overtime at clcfamily.church or you can just jump in live 12 ish on tuesday okay uh, by the way megan just mentioned it but check out thursday's vision update video because we'll share with you all that's going on next saturday or this upcoming saturday for the merry little christmas party now i'll get to talk to you about ways that we can serve our community with a food drive so please 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 tune in and then uh check that out okay uh so if you've uh if you're new here we teach in what's called a series okay uh, that just means it takes more than one week to kind of work through it and this is going to take us about six weeks and we're doing a, a sermon series called god with us meaning uh that god is actually with us so you just sang some songs about that so hopefully you're primed and ready to consider those things and it comes from this idea that um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's this promise that's going to happen that there's going to be a Savior who's going to come and he's going to fix all humanity. Okay? That's Jesus. And they say, you will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so typically during the Christmas season, people come to church looking to consider this Christmas, which means Christ Mass, which means the worship of Christ. And so this big season of worshiping Christ. And the way that most of the time we do that is actually by looking at them the Christmas story, all the pageantry of the star, the shepherds, the wise men, the virgin birth, the manger, you know, all the, you know, the sheep, the donkeys, all those kind of things. And what, what we decided to do this year was kind of highlight, wow, that's very significant, you know, story and very significant for us in understanding God putting on a body, stepping down into humanity. What we just sang about was from the cradle to the grave, and we talk a lot about the cradle scenes and then we're going to talk a lot the Easter about the grave scenes, but there's this kind of this 30, 32, 33-year gap that kind of gets missed in this season. And we, we covered here uh, during the year, and we thought, man, so much of God being with us had, has so little to do with him being a baby and so little to do with his crucifixion scene and everything to do with so many years that he just spent with his people, right? The whole goal of the gospel, what you'll hear this over and over again, is that God desires to be with you forever, to partner with you in his kingdom forever. That, that's the goal. And so the whole Old Testament is kind of written in this understanding that there is this promise that's going to come, right? This promise, right? Whole Old Testament is there's this promise that one day God will be back with us. New Testament is the story of the fulfillment, which is, guess what? God fulfilled his promises, right, in the person and work of Jesus. So we're going to look each and every week about Jesus actually being present with his people, trying to understand what that meant for uh, Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago, and understand what it means for us today. Really, really important to figure that out. And so we're going to go through that each and every week. And while this is called God with us, it's really just an extension of a series we've been working on for the last several months called the Gospel of Luke. So if you don't know anything about the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke uh, was a physician turned investigative journalist. So he was a doctor hired by this guy named Theophilus. This is a true story, right? True story named Theophilus, rich, probably Roman ruler, who was trying to figure out whether or not he should uh, start, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, that was been what he would have done in the Roman Empire, to transition to say Jesus is Lord. But if he says Jesus is Lord, there's all sorts of implications for his life. He loses a lot of affluence and influence if he makes that decision. So if he's going to if he's going to move his allegiance from the Roman Empire to the God of the universe, he wants to make sure that this stuff is actually true, right? Some of you are there. Many of you online or out in the parking lot are also there. Just going, well, it sounds like a good story if it's true, but it kind of sounds like all the other stories, the folklore, the myth, the legend, and it's fine if you're a doubter or cynic. We welcome you here, and I spend most of my life being both of those things, a cynic and a doubter. And so more than likely, Theophilus was open to the idea that God was loving, gracious, kind, could have a plan for his life, and perhaps that's where you are, open to the idea that God's gracious, kind, all those things, but wasn't quite certain, so he hires this guy, true story, not folklore, myth, or legend, right? True story, Luke, to go and investigate Jesus' life, and uh, Jesus' life, and 
what we can deduce is Luke spends years, if not a decade, going and tells us in Luke chapter 1, he goes and gets all the eyewitness accounts, meaning he went and sat down with the people who sat down with Jesus. And he said, tell me about it, right? And he went and read all the written documents, meaning he was reading books of the Bible and first century deeds and going into any kind of document he could get, right? Including probably other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, which are written ahead of Luke. Luke's written in about 85 AD. And so he gathers all that information, and he goes and he listens to all the local pastors and storytellers. And he gathers all the information, puts it together in a chronological, orderly account, and he tells us this in Luke chapter 1. He writes these things so that you, that's Theophilus and us, may have certainty of the things that we've been taught. So, uh, in 2020 and all sorts of chaos, the one thing I do know about you, know about me, is, boy, would we like to have some certainty. Right? Like to know what's going on with our election results. Like to know what's going on with, you know, all the, all the information about COVID. What's true, what's not true. All this kind of stuff, right? You're, you're, you're trying to search the truth, and you're not sure which source to, to, to grab anymore to give you the truth, right? You don't know that there's anything that's purely objective. Maybe you have some out there. If you know some purely objective, send them my way. I'd love to, love to see them. Because it just all seems to be everything has some kind of slant to it, right? And so we all have this kind of issue where we don't know what's, certain and if you want certainty what you have to do is you have to cling to truth and if you can't find truth you're in all sorts of trouble in 2020 we're in all sorts of trouble so the neat thing about the gospel and john one of luke's one of people luke would have interviewed and one of jesus's buddies there is this guy named john he's one of jesus followers he tells us in john chapter 20 21 he says i mean we could write about all the stuff all the stuff all the stuff and we could tell you all the stories of jesus but there's not a library that could contain it but instead, I write these things so that you may believe. In other words, have certainty. And what John wanted you to believe is actually a quote that Jesus says himself right before he gets arrested, murdered, and, you know, resurrected. Where Jesus makes this big statement, dogmatic statement even, closed-minded, depending on how you look at it, statement. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning Luke's going to tell you, I write these things so you have certainty about truth. The certainty that you should have truth in is not some idea or philosophy is actually about a person jesus is the truth truth is a person right and so uh lou's going to point to over and over again that there is this person jesus that we should have our hope in that we can place our certainty in so many of us are there and i hope today this uh builds some more resolve for you and if you're not so certain about this boy boy i'm not going to try to manipulate you or coerce you or make you feel some weird emotions and tell you those emotions you're going to cry and tell you those are from Jesus. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to lay out this beautiful story so that you can, you can decide for yourself whether or not the claims that Jesus made make sense and are real and accurate. And the beautiful part about what we're going to do and what we're going to do for the next several weeks is we're not going to look at just this one little sliver of scripture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. But what we're going to do is we're going to see how this little little tiny snapshot of a moment that happens 2,000 years ago applies to 2,000 years later and applies to 4,000 years before. You see, the story of the gospel and the story of the scriptures is it's just one story that tells you about human history. No, it's not a science book. It's not a history book. It's a story about God loving his people and going to the ends of the earth and doing the craziest things to bring his people back to him and so what we're going to do each and every week is we're going to jump back and forth on this timeline so i got this timeline for you so if you imagine this is kind of see this is black timeline i kept the ribbon back there we're not going to do the ribbon we're not going to wrap anything y'all laugh too much at my serious moment thanks a lot guys appreciate it and uh so the, i want you to imagine this timeline here if you weren't then i don't understand what i'm going to go back to last week just uh, fast forward to the end and giggle at me not thinking something all the way through okay uh so timeline timeline so i want you to imagine that you see these little arrows arrows on both sides got them both there we go arrows on both sides got one there one there i want you to imagine that this way going this way looking as far back this way is a eternity past right ghost of eternity past right and uh go as far this way as you can and that's all the way 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 out in the distant future okay that's one way other way got it got it and so on this timeline somewhere right Let's give you this. Humans uh, began. The Bible tells us that God spoke everything into existence, took some dirt, formed it up into a human, and it was dead. Now, there's a couple different arguments that was it dead as it never was living, or was it just without a soul? We can have those arguments. I think there's some neat stuff, and you'll see in the scriptures why this would be helpful today to go, well, when God breathes life into this dead being, he breathes a soul and a being and an identity into him, right? And then he makes him 
in his image, in God's image is what it tells us. So maybe you're like, I don't know that I believe in the first person Adam and not sure how I feel about it just being 6,000 years ago. You've got carbon date and you've got all this different evidence and you've got the stars way out in the distant that we're just now seeing that are millions of years old. And, that, and if, you, if you're there, that's okay. Yeah, this, this will still work for you, right? And so you go, okay, maybe you're not in the, I believe the earth 6,000 years old and I think the oldest man is 6,000 years. I would say I believe it is, but just my opinion, doesn't really matter if, if we agree on that, right? That's, a, that's a, a state border, not a national border. You can come on over to my state. You don't have to get the, you know, 72-hour, uh, you know, COVID test. You can come on over, right? And so Adam right here, and so if you don't believe Adam was the first born 6,000 years ago, you would say at some point there were not men and women, and then there were men and women. However we get there, there are men and women, okay? Got it? And so that's it. So if there's going to be a first man, we've got to come up with a name. Let's call him Adam, okay? So there we go. And what the scriptures tell us is that in the beginning, Adam was experiencing his best life, right? It actually tells us in Genesis 2 and 3 that uh, God walked in the garden in the cool of the night, meaning God actually hung out with Adam. Remember, I told you the goal of the gospel was that you would be with him forever. And you get to partner with him in, the, in, in kingdom living forever. And in the beginning, it was that way. And then Adam chooses his own plan other than over God's, and God goes, hey, I'm perfect and holy, and you want your own plan, you can have your own plan, but you can't do it in my presence. Kicks him out of the garden. And from that point forward, you just see throughout human history, and we're going to come back to this in about 20 minutes, okay? So see throughout human history just this broken humanity that continues to play out, right? And so the whole Old Testament, the, the first 39 books of the Bible, all tell the story of people just like Adam, just like us, who some days we get it right, some days we have good days. Some days we actually do the things that we say we're going to do. And we have this experience like we are. We are extra human. Right? You knock out the tasks. You didn't look at that. You didn't drink that. You didn't say that. You loved your kids well. You didn't scream. You didn't yell. You had those days. It just feels good. Right? Old Testament's filled with those days. And then you have the days where you do drink that. You do look at that. You do say that. You do yell at the kids. Right? You do keep your pajamas on for a week. Whatever it is. Right? You have those days and you go, oh, man, what is wrong with me? right? Whole Old Testament just kind of highlights those things and shows a humanity that just is bent towards wanting to do something really significant, wanting to be pleasing to God, wanting to know God, and then also over and over again choosing their appetite, their reactionary, I need this now, their temporal satisfaction over the kingdom. And every time it would wreck humans and they would cry out to God and God would come in and he'd meet their needs every single time when people cried out to God and they repented, God came and saved them from their devastation. But they were temporary, band-aid solutions. And what would happen every single time throughout human history, you have all these different times, God would speak into it and say, but one day, one day, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. One day, one day, it won't be based on your temporary band-aid solutions because I will send you a Savior and he will come and he will meet you and you will see him and you will worship him and he will pay the price of your sins now and for all eternity. One day all things will be made right again. And maybe you believe that could be the case or maybe many of you are going, I'm just not so sure. Right? Join the club. 39 books covering a bunch of people who aren't so sure. Look around. Look around. Right? A bunch of people who are still going, is this really true? Is this really real? Can we really put our hope in this? Right? Throughout human history. And so the story to Adam and through all that all the different people in the Old Testament was just a story of trial and a lot of error and a lot of coverage and protection and grace and forgiveness from the God of the universe who would point towards a day, towards a fulfillment. And what, we would, what we'd argue is that fulfillment begins with God being with us. And so if Adam was somewhere way back in the distant past, then we have Jesus. He shows up somewhere around 0 AD, maybe 3 AD, and here he is. He's on the timeline, and just to put it in perspective, if, you know, this is eternity past this way, eternity future, where I say heaven exists, all that kind of stuff, here we are in 2020. Make with it what you will in terms of the gap. Doesn't really matter, but that's where we are, right? And so what we're kind of looking at is kind of the story of how this moment affects this moment, and this moment affects this moment, and this moment affects every other single moment all human history. This moment. This moment. So God being with us, this Christmas story, is not just this neat little snapshot of a moment in time. They go, oh, that's cute. What can we learn from it? And it's going, no, no, no. This changes everything this way. And this changes everything this way. You see, God didn't exist on a timeline. But then he steps on a timeline because all of a sudden with Adam and Eve, 
when, with their decisions, what ends up happening to humans is they get an expiration date. They get an expiration date. Before all this stuff, there was no expiration date. They get an expiration date. We get an expiration date. Luke got an expiration date. Theophilus got an expiration date. And God sent his son to resolve that and invite us out of this birth-to-death timeline and into an eternal one. So what happens here changes everything on both sides. So we're going to jump back and forth and each and every week and be fun, I think. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at a specific moment that happened about, about 2,000 years ago, maybe 1,990, somewhere around there, a long, long time ago, where Jesus is going to interact with some people. No, if you're brand new, weren't with us last week or the week before, we just kind of been chronicling Jesus's first few months in ministry. So Jesus had, grew up kind of unassuming, didn't do much for the first 30 years. I mean, he was the carpenter. He, you know, we see a little bit in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor of God, favor of man. But that's all we get in the snapshot. And then about 30 years into, you know, 30 AD, Jesus is about 30 years old, you know, 29, 31, and he starts beginning this ministry, and he invites a bunch of ragamuffins, like people who are broken, like all the people in the Old Testament, all the people in the New Testament, all of us, right? And he invites them into the story of him being present with him. And what we're going to see happen is that the, the goal of the gospel is that we would be with Jesus forever, but it's, a, it's more significant than that. Not only does he want us to be with him forever, he wants us to partner with him forever. Be with him and partner with him. You got it? So Jesus is going to show up and he invites these 12 people into this partnership, this way by which we could serve other people, care for other people, you know, meet the needs of other people, participate in the prayer that he, he declared and taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's going to teach us how to participate in inviting God's kingdom into heaven and partnering with him to make heaven happen here on earth. You got it? So that God with us is more than just a band-aid to fix their solutions and pipe us into heaven one day in the future. So Jesus is going to start that with these 12 disciples, and they're going to start in this random area, this little bitty town called Capernaum. Capernaum is where one of Jesus' followers, Peter, lived, and Peter is the one who followed his appetite the most. He is a mess. He's a ready, shoot, aim guy, and God's going to take someone with, you know, a heavy temper, heavy reactionary qualities, bent towards you know, reaction rather than thinking. He is a doer, right? And he's going to take him, and he's going to point all those, and leverage all those gifts, and he's going to use those. And what he told Peter, you're no longer going to be a fisherman. You're going to be a fisher of men. And so Jesus from, you know, from Nazareth is going to move, you know, a few miles down the road, and he's going to have this home base in this little town called Capernaum. And in Capernaum, it's kind of going to be his headquarters for the next 24 to 30 months. This is going to be his, I mean, he's going to move throughout Israel, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of miles away and do lots of stuff. But this is going to be the home base and basically what we believe Peter's home. And this little bitty fishing village, probably smaller than the footprint of our church, right? Small place, little condominiums, 400 square foot homes, and they're all there. And Jesus is going to start doing a lot of ministry right there. That's where we find them. So what just has happened is Jesus has done some crazy stuff. He has uh, already made, uh, you know, blind people see. He's uh, cast out demons in a, in a bunch of folks. If you want to go back two, three weeks, listen to that sermon. I don't have time to cover all the demonic stuff and the authority we have over that today. So he's going to do all those things. Even last week, we found him uh, touching a man and healing him of his leprosy and freeing him from all sorts of bondage. So as a result of all that, what's going to happen is everybody's like, Jesus is doing free miracles, right? And you know what happens when you hear about free stuff. People kind of congregate around the free stuff. And so all these people are going to show up in this little bitty fishing village, right? They're all coming from all over trying to get the handouts, get the fix. And frankly, a lot of them need some real healing. And a lot of them had some real significant damage that God could have really, really changed. They're, they're here now, right? And so the, all these people are going to come. And I just want you to see what Jesus does here. And we're going to make some observations. And then we'll keep going and watch what happens to be my favorite miracle story in all the scriptures. Luke chapter 5, I'm reading from verse 15. This is the English Standard Version today. And here's what it says. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. Remember, so he heals the leper and he says, don't tell anyone. And he goes and tells everyone just the opposite of what we do. Jesus tells us to tell everyone. We don't tell anyone, right? So he tells them, don't tell anyone. And all of a sudden, the report goes and went abroad, meaning out in the distance, right? And great crowd. And great crowds gathered to him, and he 
uh, and to be healed of their infirmary. So I told you that they come from all over the place because they want their healing done. Other lepers, other blind people, people in pain, sorrow, whatever it is, they all come to Jesus. Now watch this. Verse 16. But, but, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. All these people who need healing, all these people in pain, they hear that Jesus heals this leper, meets him right where he is, and gives him a brand new life. He had a death sentence, and now he's going to be filled with life. He's going to be covered in Jesus' blood for all eternity. He's going to see. Sorry, if you're not, uh, if this, this brand new to you, a Christian thing, it's like, oh, wait, you're talking about covered in blood. Sorry, that's probably not language that makes sense to you. Just strike it. And so Jesus, uh, uh, this guy who, like, literally everything is better for him. Beautiful moment. And Jesus has the power to do that for everyone else. They all come, and Jesus goes, sorry, I can't meet your needs right now. Wait, I thought this God is the God who saves everyone. God, this God is the one who's going to, you know, solve all the problems. He is. So this God who's going to solve all the problems isn't going to solve these people's problems. A couple things to think about here. One, you're going to see today that they actually have a much bigger problem than whatever their infirmity is, right? They have a much bigger problem. And Jesus came to solve that problem. To, to, remember, the goal was us and him for, together forever. So Jesus is trying to solve the problems out here, not just right here. So these people come, and so they have bigger problems. You're going to see what those problems are, and Jesus is going to offer healing for all those problems. That's one thing. Two, what we're going to see here is Jesus actually just goes, and he withdraws to the wilderness to pray. So I want you to see this, because you're going to see this show up again in just a few verses, and it's going to be a really important part for what we're learning today. This shows his humanity. It's just so significant that the God of the universe puts governors on himself. He literally puts on human flesh and he steps down and he has to sleep. And he has to eat. And he has to drink water. And we're going to see some pretty significant moments where he's going to drink water because he's a human. And he's just going to do some really supernatural things. So what you see here is you see a God who sacrificed all of his deity, or most of his deity, to put on boundaries. So this guy does not have a full tank all the time, which should help you in some things. Because if the God of the universe has to pause and withdraw and pray and have his cup filled, then it's really important we do the same thing. Right? So Jesus is actually modeling something really, really important. You see what it says there? It says it withdraw to the desolate places, the wilderness. It's really, really significant because... This isn't like he goes and hangs out with his buddies to get recharged. Not that you shouldn't do that. Not that you should hang out with buddies. But your buddies can't solve your real problems in your tank. Because they didn't make you. They didn't design you. They didn't, cannot fuel you. You see this? So one of the things that happens in 2020 is we, we are so good at finding so many things that distract us more than fill our buckets. They just distract us. They take our minds off the things that cause us pain so we forget about the pain, and then we can go back to our day. We just distract it. But we never really get recharged. We just—it's kind of like check-kiting. I don't know if you know what that is. Back in the day, people would write a check, and then they'd write another check, and then they'd write another check, and they'd all kind of be out there before they were cashed in. And, you know, they're, they're spending $15,000 with only $500 in their account, right? So this is what we do. We just— we kind of do those things. We go and find some energy here, then we get distracted and go find some energy here, get distracted, go to these things. And so we're just constantly living in this state of distraction because we can't really deal with the, the pain of what it feels like to be really empty, right? That's why Thanksgiving for many of us was really hard this year because you weren't around people, right? And it, all of a sudden what came to, the, came to rise to the top is just this awkwardness about sitting still and not feeling really comfortable with who we are. But the only way you can get comfortable with who you are is if you can sit still before God and hear from him and respond to him and receive his love and grace. And by the way, that is what heaven is like, sitting still with God. And so well, at some point, we're going to have to figure out how to sit still with God, right? And I'm, I'm preaching at me as much as I'm preaching at you because I am bent towards production. But we're going to see Jesus and his humanity models. There's a lot of work to be done. There's always going to be work to be done. But what he's going to do is he's going to pause. He's going to go to desolate places, meaning there is nothing else that can charge him. Either God's going to recharge him or he's in big trouble. The good news is God recharges him every single time. And so he's going to withdraw there, right, while there are people all waiting in line for him to fix them. And he doesn't do it. This is also really important. You see, Jesus is going to be obedient to God no matter what. 
regardless of what other people's expectations are, regardless of what other people want from him. And so this season, really kind of significant, because you're going to have all these things to do on your calendar, all these things, and you're going to want to say yes to everything because we are so afraid of disappointing or hurting other people. But hear me, you are not responsible for the pain your obedience to God causes other people. You're not responsible. If God tells you to do something, you are not responsible for how those things affect other people, right? So Jesus is not responsible for the pain that's going on out there. He's just being obedient to God and trusting God. So our first step as Christians, if you're not a Christian, keep listening, definitely worth the time. But our first step is to actually get to a place where we're actually hearing God's voice. And it says, you can't please God without faith. And faith comes from hearing. And guess where hearing comes from? The Word of God. So, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to create shame for you in any way, but perhaps, perhaps, this crazy season that requires us to sit still and be around less people could be a season where we might actually be interested in opening up God's Word and hearing from Him. No shame if that's hard for you. I would start with two minutes a day, right? And then move it to two and a half minutes, then three minutes. I'm not talking about this big, you got to fix it all in one thing. You don't just go to the gym and, you know, pull every muscle and, some work has to be done. And so we're going to see here is Jesus is going to go and he's going to do those things. We see his humanity in this. He sets some boundaries. And here's what's really important here. Again, all this is kind of not the sermon, but it's, it's bonus material, right? There it is. So healthy people can set boundaries. Healthy people can say no. And here's something crazier. Healthy people can also receive no. So, as we set boundaries, try to sort through how to get some time and desolate places with the Lord, we have to say no to some things. And it's appropriate to say no because healthy people say no. And there are going to be some people that might not like that, but healthy people, you and I should be healthy people. We can hear the word no and receive it and respect it as well, right? So Jesus is going to say no. Now, there's not going to be a lot more conversation about this. It's going to show us that he's going to spend some time. So this is not the sermon. This is the bonus sermon that Jesus is going to get to, you know, death of the place is going to be recharged. He's not responsible for the pain. His obedience to God causes other people. He puts up some boundaries. He gets recharged. And you're going to see why in just a second because he's about to get right back to work right after this pause. So there's times to rest. And there's times to work hard. And so we're going to see over and over again, Jesus is going to pour himself out in ministry. And then he's going to recalibrate and recharge and then pour himself out in ministry. So we're going to find ourselves... Just in a few days, verse 17, we don't know exactly what the time frame is here. The, the, the language isn't very specific, and it says this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So there is a lot going on in this verse. So it says Jesus poured himself out, and now he's going to uh, get recharged, and he's going to jump back in, he's going to be in Capernaum, and he's about to be teaching. So he's teaching, okay? So Capernaum is a little fishing village up on the Sea of Galilee, and literally these other towns, where it says of Judea and Jerusalem, are, you know, a couple, mi- a couple days, three, four, five, six, seven-day journey for people to get to this. So this news, as I told us earlier, is traveling abroad. It's going everywhere, and these people are coming and responding. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is going to teach, and where he is is about to teach. There's going to be a lot of people who want to hear what he has to say. So they're all coming to hear what he has to say, and it actually tells us who these people are. In just a second, so it says, and his, he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. And so it's going to tell us a little later, later what the teachers are, and so there's these going to be these people that are inter- going to interact with Jesus. Some are called scribes, okay? Others are called Pharisees. These are two different groups of people, and you'll see them throughout the scriptures, okay? So the teachers, the scribes, they were a very elite educated class. Very elite. Like they had all the education, all the power, all the influence, and people sought them for their understanding of the scriptures. These are people who were professional Jews. They were paid to be Jews, but not just like in the priestly, they do the sacrifices. These were the knowledgeable people, right? They didn't have Google. These are the folks you went to for all the information. And then there's the Pharisees. They're gonna, you're going to see them kind of really grow throughout the Scriptures. But the Pharisees are actually the working class. We hear that and we think of this real religious elite. No, no, that's the scribes. And for every one scribe, he'd have his little crew of Pharisees. So these would be working class people who would follow their scribes. So there would be, I don't know, a dozen, 26, 25, whatever, who would sit before the scribe and learn all they could possibly understand about the, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, about Yahweh, and they would kind of submit to this person, the scribe's teaching. They would submit to kind of his viewpoint on, on the scriptures, right? And so the scribes were these religious elitists. The Pharisees were the ones who felt 
underneath each of these religious elitists. So for every one scribe, we can just go 10 Pharisees, okay? So all of a sudden, on one of those days, Jesus is teaching in this little bitty fishing village, and all the religious elitists, the scribes, show up, and they bring their posse with them. They're going, let's go on a field trip. Let's go hear about this guy. Let's go see if he is who he says he is. And they're skeptical. They don't think he is who he says he is, right? And so they're going to show up, and they're going to show up in this little bitty house in Capernaum. I showed you a couple of weeks ago that these are small houses. The whole house is less than the size of a stage. And so Jesus is going to be there, and he's going to be teaching. And guess who's going to be on the front row? Guess who's going to be live tweeting and blogging? These scribes and their posse of Pharisees. And what could happen is they're hearing one thing, and so they're getting it, and they're turning around and telling their crew, yeah, that's true, yeah, that's not true. I mean, these, this is the, the fact finders right here. They're fact-checking the God of the universe who's standing right here, right here. They're fact-checking with their little bitty posse. You got it? So all these people are there. So 30 AD, all these intersect religious leaders, their posse, and Jesus, and they're all in this little bitty town because they had heard of what this, what this guy was doing. So they're showing up to figure out, if the, is, the, if, is this guy who they say he is? And so they're trying to consider all that. And then it gives us this really neat little part of that in the end of verse 17. It says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, 2,000 years later, we're like, of course it was. <laughs> yeah, of course, he's Jesus. But as Luke is writing this in 85, 90 AD, he is, he is helping to kind of put the antennae up for those who are reading it, for Theophilus to go, hey, Theophilus, pay attention to what's about to happen because I'm going to tell you that the God of the universe has actually injected all of his power. Remember when said, uh, that's the place is to be recharged with the power of the Lord. So he is, he is, he's, full, he's, he's six bars, right? Full bars, right? He's ready to go. Lou's going to tell us that, which should kind of prime us to go, okay, what's about to happen? Religious people listening, Jesus is there. And typically when that happens, there's always something pretty astonishing that takes place. Let's see what it is. Verse 18, it says this. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Now, you might be familiar with this, uh, this passage. In fact, um, three and a half years ago, I had to come here, preach a sermon, and you guys literally judged me. Like, you were my fact finders. Y'all did. Y'all literally voted. You judged me on that day. I walked out of the room. Everybody in here wrote whether or not you liked me or not. Yes, we like him. No, we don't. We don't like his shoes. Same shoes, actually, same shoes. And I don't know what, so y'all judged me, right? And Julie and I went back to the little green room, and we sat there and waited for, you, for the votes to be tallied. And then we came back and said, by a very, very slim majority, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> That's what they, I, think, I think it was one vote over. That's a joke. But there's this vote. And this was the passage I talked about because it's so important to me to see the role that we play as Christians in bringing in our brothers and sisters to Jesus, right? So you've probably heard this passage. I've preached it two or three times since I've been here. I know Pastor Ben has taught it on a Wednesday night during kind of a cow class. So this is a pretty common one. What I'd ask for you to do is kind of suspend all your expectations about what we're about to cover, okay? Because what you think we're going to cover, we're not going to cover. Because there's this neat little thing that's going to happen in the next verse that, or the next couple of verses that are really, really important. So in this moment, what we do know is that um, Jesus is teaching, scribes and Pharisees are there, and now he's around this interaction with this paralyzed guy. This guy can't, can't move to the point where he's having to be, you know, carried by four friends to Jesus. So these four guys, like the scribes and Pharisees, have heard all the stuff that's going on. And they're going, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy might be the guy, but even if he's not the guy, like the Messiah, he's at least the guy who can make the leprosy go away. And so if he can at least do that, then perhaps he can make our friend walk, Right? And so I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why this is so important to them. I don't know if they have a basketball team and they're down one man. They're like, you've got to fix our buddy so we can have 5v5 again. I don't know. But they, there's something wrong with him. And so the four of them are bringing him to Jesus, right? So they hear about it. So they're going to bring him to Jesus. Really, really important. They bring him to Jesus. So they are hopeful, optimistic about what Jesus could do. Could he be the fulfillment of all the promises? And if so, what does this mean for our buddies? So they're bringing him. Got him? they're all bringing him. Verse 19 says this, but finding, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. There's so much going on in verse 19. There's a felonious act, right? They're going to literally destroy someone's rooftop. Pretty important. <laughs> a disrespectful act. They're literally going to interrupt the God of the universe. I mean, this is all sorts of complicated. They decided to do it. But the first thing I just want to point out is 
the reason they can't get to him is because of them. The reason they can't get to him is because of them. In other words, you see what the problem is here? There's a bunch of religious people all sitting in the front, fact-checking Jesus, and literally standing in the way of ministry. So important. Because there's this migration that happens for each of us. Boy, does it happen to me, and boy, do I have to tether it and repent of it. This idea that Christianity is about knowing and not doing, which is the exact opposite of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that Jesus didn't just know, he did. He stepped out of heaven. He got out of his seat and out into the muck and the mire, right? And what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see it there on the scriptures, is literally the very obstacles that stand in the way of people getting to Jesus typically aren't some pagans out there, but the, the religious elite in here, in us, that are standing in the way, thinking we just need a little bit more information, we just need to know a little bit more, and literally stand in the way. There is a dude here who needs healing, whose life has been absolute misery. And there's a person, Jesus, who can actually heal him. But instead of removing the things that get him to Jesus, they stand in the way and actually create the obstacles. Right? And we see all this going on. You're going to hear it over and over again over the next several weeks and months and the next year. Right? This is a crazy world we live in. And there's all sorts of rules and things we have to follow. And there's so much fear and so much dissension in our world. And what ends up happening in all that is all the debate and battle leads to a place of paralysis where we just go, okay, we're not going to do all that. Let's just not do anything. But hear me. There are thousands of people just in our community, just right here, that, know, that will not be able to pay their power bill, will not know how to provide food for themselves. Like these, this, We're seeing over and over again in our community, from high-end jobs to low-end jobs, of people being laid off. And what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to be agile enough to be able to position ourselves to go and meet the needs of our community. Right? Yeah, we're going to keep coming here. I'm going to keep teaching the Bible. We're going to keep being challenged. But we cannot let this thing, this ship, doing the church stuff here, stand in the way of the actual truth of the gospel, which is out there. Right? And so what we're going to see here is there are real needs, and there are real people who want this guy to have his needs met, and they are convinced if they can do all the, remove all the obstacles and get him to the feet of Jesus, then something miraculous will happen. Right? You're going to see over and over again over the next several weeks is when people's faith collide with God's faithfulness, supernatural things happen. And so faith actually has hands and feet. There's actually work to be done. And we're going to have to be a church that goes, we're not going to stand in the way of the work. We're going to all participate in the work. And so, hear me, we're going to keep working through this, and we're going to try to figure out ways to be safe and appropriate. But we're not going to let fear guide the way that we serve the people in our community. Because there is work to be done. Right? And so you're going to see this. These guys are all sitting there, and they're making the notes, and these folks are literally trying to get them to Jesus, and they can't do it. So what do they do? They do the unthinkable. They literally crawl up on top of a roof. You know how hard it is to get a grown man up on top of a roof when he can't help it? Like, I don't even know how, how you do this. Like, I, And there's, so there's four of them. I don't know if they rigged some pulley system. I have no idea. It's just hard work, right? So they're going to lift him up there. And then when they get up there, they're not going to sure, be sure exactly how to get in there. So they're going to have to literally remove the roof. So they're removing the roof, debris falling into the room. People are trying to listen to Jesus. He's trying to teach. And all of a sudden, stuff's falling on people's heads. Probably Jesus' head, because it says they lower him right in front of Jesus to his feet. So right above Jesus is all this going on. And so there's lots we could talk about of just the, the craziness and the audacity of the moment. But I don't want you to see that right now. We've got too much else to cover. And so they're, they're going to go, we're going to do whatever it takes to make it simple for our friend to connect to Jesus, right? This is the result of Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist is quoting Isaiah thousands of years earlier, right? It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Remove every mountaintop. Fill in every valley. Make every crooked path straight so that all mankind can see and know God's salvation. Right? They literally are preparing the way for this man. So they're doing whatever it is. And now watch what happens next. Verse 20. And when he, that's Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus sees him lowered. Could have been irritated that it was interrupted. Could have been 
irritated that the sermon's going to take longer, could have been irritated that he lost his spot, whatever. But he can, all these things, but instead he lowers it. And it literally, this is what he says. He sees these guys. Now, here's the great thing. These four guys, or however many there are, they're still on the roof. They're still on the roof. And he looks up at them. And it says he sees their faith. And then he looks at this paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. So that's pretty significant. Probably wouldn't miss it if we're not Christians or if you're not a Christian here. Going, The sin literally means just the, that we didn't miss the mark. Another way to define it is forfeiture of property rights. That's what sin means. So literally in the beginning of time with Adam and then through us, over and over again, we said, God, we don't want your home. We want our own home. Stay out of it. And God goes, okay, have your own home. In other words, you lose connection, you lose my presence, you lose me being with you as a result of sin. And so in this moment, he sees their sin, uh, sees their faith, and forgives this man of his sin. In other words, in that very moment, this guy, this guy, laying on the ground, is going to be invited into all eternity. Like, this is the moment, this moment, this moment. He still doesn't walk, he still doesn't know those things, but in that moment, this guy, everything is right for him for all eternity. Hear me. One day, you and I will talk to this guy. We can ask him about this story, right? I mean, this is a guy where there's lots of other stuff, right? I told you just earlier, when Jesus withdrew the wilderness to pray, all these people were lined up, and they wanted their, their infirmities healed. And he goes, no, 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 no. There's something bigger for you. This is the bigger. So he looks, and he forgives them of sin. Now, here's the crazy thing. They didn't, he didn't do it as a result of what this guy did. This is so messed up. There's this, this um, discipline in, in theology called soteriology. It means the study of salvation. Which, how do you become saved? What does salvation look like? And this one, honestly, guys, messes with all my understanding about that. Right? If you confess to your mouth, God is faithful and just and will forgive you of sins and all unrighteousness. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Right? There's this, this action step for this guy to do those things. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't even respond to this guy's faith. He looks at their faith and forgives them. Hear, hear me. This is so significant because it means we can still play a very active part and people's lives who don't want to know Jesus don't know Jesus. Like, you got some in-laws, right? You got some children. You got some nieces and nephews and neighbors. And you can actually play a part in their salvation. God could see your faith in the work and, and respond and forgive them of their sins. This is so profound because it means that our participation in the gospel is very active. It is not passive. Now, other thing I just point out is this guy had to be willing, right? I mean, to be put on a mat taken to a building and then lifted up on a roof. I mean, he can roll off. He can pitch a fit. So there is a level of faith and submission that you see in this guy. So it's a both end. So we see both this guy and the four friends or how many, many friends are going to participate. Now, here's the crazy thing. We read this and go, that's really pretty news. That's awesome. Now, this guy and the Pharisees, they're not that pleased in this moment because they're like, remember, Jesus, we need a fifth for our basketball team. Forgiving him of his sins doesn't help him get up and play basketball with us. We actually came here because we wanted you to fix him. We wanted you to fix his problems with his body. So all of a sudden you go, oh, what a pretty story. Those four guys are like, well, thanks, I guess. Oh, yay, your sins are forgiven. I guess we'll carry him back home now. Do, can, we, can we carry him back up the roof or do we, what do we, right? And so this isn't the moment that they were expecting. This isn't the moment anybody expecting, but it's a better moment than the ones that anybody was expecting because this is the picture of him and Jesus forever, right? Now, Jesus wants him to partner with him in the kingdom. So watch what happens next. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. These are the fact finders. So they're here. Remember I told you, they're having their own little thing, talking. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood that there was these promises that God could forgive people of their sins and humanity of its sins, but only God could do that. Now this man is actually doing those things. So they're whispering, going, see, told you he was crazy. Yeah, this is the guy we follow. Hey, come on, Ga grab your stuff. It's time to go. This man's crazy. You think he can forgive sins. Now watch this. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, this is really important and scary, right? So Jesus actually goes, you know, go, go, Jesus, mine, looks into these folks and says, and Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them. Why do you question in your heart? So they're whispering, they're talking about it, and Jesus looks at these guys and goes, hey, why are you thinking that? And then he goes on and says, which is easier? Let me ask you. To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Okay, you're not, you think this is beyond the realm of my uh, ability or my authority to forgive him of a sin. So what should be easier, guys? Hey, what should be easier? Would you rather me just tell him to stand up and walk or forgive him of a sin? What do you think easier? I'm going to watch what he said. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So clean up after yourself, make up your bed, and then go home. Right, so we're going to see in just a second, you probably know the story as he gets up and walks, but there's so much in this verse I think is really, really important. So he is going to do the supernatural miracle, and he's going to do a couple things. He's going to meet his, his temporal immediate needs. He's going to give him the ability to stand up and walk, and he's going to meet his long-term emotional, spiritual longings, and he's going to forgive him of sins and invite him into relationship forever, right? So all those things are happening. But you see what it says there? He's saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, these scribes are well-versed. They know the whole Old Testament. And he sees all them, and he speaks to them, and he says that, that you may know the Son of Man. He says something crazy, and it'd be really easy to bypass this. It actually says it, I think it's, I don't know, 23 times in the Gospel of Luke, 80 plus, 85 times throughout the Gospels. This is the term that Jesus refers to himself as, Son of Man. Son of Man. So, he says the Son of Man. This is the first time I think we find in the Gospel of Luke that he's going to declare to these people that he is the Son of Man. Now, when you see in the Scriptures, there's two different ways that uh, Jesus is referred to besides Christ, Messiah. Son of Man, Son of God. Okay? Son of Man and Son of God. Son of God refers to Jesus' deity, that he was God. That he was God. So every time you see the Son of God, he is God's child. He is divine. He has all the authority and power. He is God, Son of God, right? But Son of Man doesn't point that. It points to his humanity, the same humanity that needed to withdraw to the wilderness to pray, right? So he's going to go, so the Son of Man. So he's going to point out his humanity. He's going to point out by saying this, this is God with you in the form of a human. This points to his humanity. So he says, Son of Man. Son of Man. Now these guys would have known, well known, they would have heard that, and they would have known that the Son of Man would have been come from this place in Daniel, okay? Daniel. It's just really, really complicated. Let me make some room here. So Daniel. So here's the thing. 600 years earlier, Daniel is this teenage boy who basically gets abducted into slavery into this terrible regime, Babylon. Horrible regime. Horrible regime, right? They are, they are terrible culturally. They are horrible human beings. And Daniel and his friends, you know him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, these friends continue to honor the Lord. That's teenagers. We've got to call our teenagers more, right? And continue to honor the Lord and do the right thing. And all these kings slowly start putting their eyes towards him. So Daniel does this as a teenager. And then in his old age, he gets thrown in the lion's den. And each time, God continues to meet him where he is. And Daniel has these crazy dreams. And in these crazy dreams, he's going to have these visions of how God is going to restore the world from its broken kings and broken kingdoms. Right? How is God going to solve all the problems in humanity with all the horrible cultural issues that we're facing? And so when they would have heard the Son of Man, they would have immediately, I promise, wholeheartedly, they would have thought back to when Daniel talked about the Son of Man being the solution to all the problems because I can't cover it all. We're going to cover a little bit of it. But because I can't cover all the implications of the book of Daniel 600 years earlier. You know, it gets crazier. Is not only is Daniel going to have some prophecies 600 years earlier. Some of the prophecies he's going to have are in uh, Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 are going to point towards another moment in 165 B.C. Got it? So Daniel in 600 B.C. is having some dreams and visions that point to 165 B.C. Now, here's what gets even crazier. Some of those dreams and visions, people believe in Revelation 12, actually point to another thing that's going to happen with the Roman Empire in 70 AD. So Daniel in 600 BC is having these visions that point to 165 BC and also to 70 AD. So this moment here that Jesus is referring to here is actually talking about 165 BC when there's going to be this, this Greek king. He's going to be horrible who's going to come in and infuse Greek culture into everything that's Jewish. He's going to ruin Greek culture to the point that the New Testament gets written in Greek. And then later in 70 AD, not only is the Roman Empire going to kill Jesus, they're then going to destroy the temple. So Daniel's having these visions that they think points to 165 BC and 70 AD, but they're like, is it those two things? Or it could be, and they think they also point to Jesus' return. So this gets nuts, right? So what's happening here, in 30 AD, Jesus is making a reference here that's pointing to here, that's pointing to here, here, and here. You follow me? All sorts of craziness. But before I kind of put all that together, let me just give you a quick video explaining to you the purpose of the Son of Man and why this matters to you. So here you go. Really, really important. Enjoy. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human, and he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. 
and then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Okay, so, so neat. Love the scriptures. That's why you should study them. Keep coming. We've got to figure this out. We're going to keep jumping back and forth on the timeline. But what we see is these moments 600 years earlier that Daniel's having these dreams of how all this is going to get solved, particularly how all this is going to get solved, and our brokenness and our flawedness, and how do we finally solve that. In fact, Paul says it this way, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this bodily devastation? He says, but to Christ Jesus. Right? So there's this picture that the Son of Man is the one who resolves all this and all this. And so the book of Daniel is this story, here's how it's defined pretty quickly, about pattern and promise. Okay? Ch- Twelve chapters that talk about the pattern of humankind, how broken it is, and then the promise of a Son of Man who's going to be the Son of Man who solves all the problems for all the sons of men. Right? That the Son of God is going to become a Son of Man so the sons of men and daughters of men can become sons and daughters of God. And so there's this pattern and this promise. And it ends in uh, Daniel chapter 12 with this idea that one day it'll all be fulfilled by the Son of Man. And it'll be fulfilled in this way that he's going to come and he's going to make all things right again. And so when Jesus is making this declaration, it's so much more than this guy laying down who's going to get up and stand up and walk. He's saying, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one who can cleanse him from all that depravity the beast in him. I'm the only one who can do that. So he's going to say, I can do that, but to show you that there's something else I can do, I'm also going to stand him up, get him to stand up and walk. And so here's what we started with last week. We start with it every Christmas season since I've been here. Right? Christmas is actually a birthday. It's a birthday. It's a birthday for the God of the universe who had a birth, who became a son of man. And so it makes sense every year. We got to go, what does the birthday boy want for Christmas? Like, why are we, you know, all the other stuff, why are we not asking, what does the birthday boy want for Christmas? And I told you one of the things he wanted, right? More presents, less presents, right? He actually tells us this in Isaiah chapter 1. He's going, you keep offering these false sacrifices, but that's not the one. I want you. I want you to offer your bodies. In other words, I want your presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. But what does he want your presence for? And here's the second thing that I want, I wholeheartedly believe, that the Son of Man wants for his birthday. Not only does he want your presence, so crazy, guys. He wants your partnership. He wants your partnership this Christmas. Right? And the reason we see this is this guy looks at the, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and goes, hey, I'm going to forgive you. You're going to be made new, but why are you going to be made new? So that you can walk in the body that I've given you to go and partner with me for the kingdom. So watch. He looks at him and he says to him, you're forgiven, but you also will forgive you of all your sins and heal your body so that you and I can partner together, so that you can be on my team and we can go participate in the kingdom. So we're going to see this first guy get forgiven of his sins and see what he gets to do next. And watch what it says. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. And he went home. He cleans up. He obeys Jesus. He cleans up and he heads home. Watch what it says here. Glorifying God. You see... The first guy forgiven of his sins and been sent on mission. He is on mission now in partnership with God. And his first role in partnership with God is to glorify him, to magnify him, to point people towards him, to help people see him, right? Now watch what happened. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And you see, many of them were so amazed that he could walk. But what was really amazing, he forgave him of his sins. The Son of Man made himself known, declared himself, and invited his child, who he made in his image, into a partnership with him that will last forever. So what does it look like to trust this? First thing I do is see the Son of Man. You've got to see Jesus for who he is. He is God incarnate. He is God with a human body, and he is going to solve and resolve. He is going to be the fulfillment of our broken pattern and the promises that he made. So 600 years earlier, Daniel was making declarations, and these guys get to see it front and center in front of a house, and you get to see it too. Be amazed at the, the pattern of what God has done and what he solved. So the first thing you do is you see it. And then the second thing that happened here is you got to see a man literally transition from death to life. In a moment, right there, you see it. And so that's what's available to you. You get to see it. You get to transition from death to life. You don't have to walk in your depravity. 
Not because you can solve it all, but because the God of the universe has told you he would meet you where you are, forgive you of your sins, and partner with you as you partner with him. He will partner with you and help cleanse you. Cleanse you is what it says. If you confess your sins to him. But of all unrighteousness, you just acknowledge that there's sin there. You tell him that, and he cleanses you. In a moment, you are positionally holy before God, right before God for now and all eternity. And now you can spend your time and energy doing the things that he wants you to spend your time and energy doing. What is that? Glorifying him. And the other thing we get to see here is we get to see a pattern in all this of how do we help those who we love. See, what's so interesting here is these guys didn't know what they were doing. They thought they were bringing their paralyzed friend to be able to walk again. But they actually were bringing their paralyzed friend to the only person who could solve this paralyzed friend and their entire timeline. So we get a pattern of how do, what do we do? We glorify God. We also get a pattern of how do we respond to the gospel? We are these guys. If you know and trust Jesus, then your job every single day is to figure out how to remove the obstacles so that your friends, neighbors, co-workers, and enemies can see him so that they can have their sins forgiven and participate in the partnership to help them move from unfaithful to faithful which is why we're going to close and the band's going to or caitlin and jason are going to come up and lead us in the song and one of the songs that we sing a lot at christmas is oh come all you faithful right and it's just such a beautiful song but we don't typically talk about how we get to faithful right because the reality is most of us don't feel faithful you know what we feel is unfaithful Right? So, like this guy, we were unfaithful. Like these scribes and Pharisees, we were unfaithful. We weren't faithful people who just came to Jesus. The fact is, Jesus drew us to himself as unfaithful, and in those moments, transitioned us to faithful. In this moment, this guy was unfaithful and broken, and in a moment, transitioned to faithful. And so this Christmas season doesn't begin with us being faithful. It begins with our acknowledgement that we are unfaithful. And he forgives us of our sins, cleanses us of all unrighteousness, and then invites us to partner with him. So we're going to sing this song called O Come All Ye Unfaithful. And because it'll be a new song for you, instead of you guys singing it, I just want you to pause if you're sitting in here or in your car or at home, just sit where you are. And I just want you to let these words kind of saturate over your heart. And you get the idea that the Son of Man came to seek and save. That's what he says. That which was lost. That which was unfaithful to make us faithful so that we can partner with him for all eternity. So as we begin this Christmas season, Jesus wants your presence and he wants your partnership, but that only begins with his forgiveness and his fulfillment in our life. So would you enjoy and be challenged by this song? Yeah.
And that was beautiful, wasn't it? So we hope that you can rest in that today, that Christ is born for you. I want to leave you with um, an Advent prayer of hope as we start this season. Commander of angel armies, while things may seem hopeless for your people, remind us this Christmas season that your son, the son of love and the one who dwells at your right hand, has come in full glory and power to reveal, rescue, revive, and restore. So we wish that for you this week. Don't forget to tune in Thursday night. Um, you can watch us live on Facebook at 8 p.m. or at clcfamily.church/vision. We hope that you have a wonderful week and a great start to this Christmas season. Have a great weekend. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you.